Would you take your Bible with me and turn to John chapter 13? John chapter 13, we're going to take a couple of verses right at the end of John 13 and then move into John chapter 14 this morning. Kids, you're on your way back there already, I see. Any other kids, three and four up to, not including kindergarten, you can make your way to the back. And uh, Miss Britta, I think, take you up to your classroom. Cool. All right. All done. Good. In this week's edition of Too Too Much Information, um, I uh, cleaned out my ears this morning. My wife (laughs) just gave me a look. But here's what I'm going to say to you. I didn't realize how badly I needed to do that. And I'll spare you the rest of the details, but it it is a kindness of God for me to be able to hear you all sing this morning in a way that I haven't in quite some time, it feels like. And, uh, and it is an encouragement to my soul to stand up here and to preach to you this morning, uh, knowing that you all are so engaged in the worship of Jesus Christ this morning. Um, okay, too much information over. All right. Um, also, before we dive into this text this morning, just a reminder that uh, members, we're going, to, uh, we're going to eat together. John mentioned it right away. Uh, during the call to worship, we're going to eat together after the service potluck, and then we're going to have a family meeting. Considering the things that are going on here at Buffalo City Church as, as church members, and uh, and if you're a member, please stick around. Don't leave. Please stay and be present for that. Uh, there's lots happening and lots of important things going on in the life of the church, a handful of uh, a relatively important things that we need to talk about together as a congregation. And be reminded, as I say that, that being a church member is different than being a member of a social organization. We use that term because the Bible uses that word when it talks about the body of Christ. We are many members. Paul in uh, Romans 12 says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. So we gather, we gather regularly to um, a handful of times during the year to eat together, to discuss the things that are happening in the local church, here at Buffalo City Church together, so that we can better love and learn and use our gifts for the benefit of Buffalo City Church as a church community and the benefit of of Jamestown. And one of the low-hanging fruits in John, actually John 13, that I didn't hit in the last couple of weeks because I was preaching just uh, just huge amounts of time and you were all like ready to leave. Um, the, uh, the One of the low-hanging applications of this text is in fact church membership. Because when we want to, um, when we want to regularly engage with one another in uh, like the foot washing act that Jesus performs, those who have been washed by Jesus wash the feet of one another. In order to do that, it requires at least a little bit of formal commitment to those around here and at least a little bit of an accountability push saying, I've got to be present. I've got to be part of the local church. My gifts are given to me not to make me unique by God, but to serve and to love other people in the local church. And so those who have been washed by Jesus seek to wash the feet of one another. That the one another is the disciples who make up the local church. Our mission here is to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. And so that command by Jesus in John 13 is backed by the full force of Jesus' authority 
and is given to us uh, in order that we might wash the feet of one another. And the question that always stems from this is how do we do this when we waver on formal commitment to the church? We're not worried that you didn't bring any food to the potluck. Uh, If Emily's in here, she's probably horrified that I just said that. But we're not worried that you didn't bring food. Your presence, you being part of this body, is far more important than putting some potato salad on the table, although that is important and it's delicious. Thank you to all who brought food. But So please join us. Buffalo City Church members, serve and love your church family. Use your gifts, leverage them for this community of faith. And there are many of you here who have been here for weeks and months and even years who aren't members. Maybe you've attended the class. Maybe you've spent a lot of time with church members here. And I'm going to exhort you this morning, and exhortation is like an encouragement with a strong call to action. I'm going to exhort you this morning, come talk to me about church membership. It's not a complicated process. I've got membership packets in front here. You can come and grab one of those. You read through that, meet together with an elder, spend a little bit of time unpacking what you've read, uh, talk about how you became a Christian, talk about your understanding of the gospel, and then that, that's what it is. That's what it is. And then there's a formal commitment to be part of the body of Christ. Uh, to keep objections or, or just simply to let this wander out of your mind um, is, is potentially hurting us or is robbing the body of Christ of an important member. And so come grab one of these packets. Maybe you're just like, I don't even know what you mean when you say member. You said it's not a social organization thing. And you're right, it's not. And we actually have a definition that's included in that packet. And I want to share it with you this morning. The, the definition is a church member is a Christian who formally aligns him or herself with a particular local church, submitting to and following the example of its spiritual leadership for the purpose of building up the church through love, and through the use of his or her gifts. So membership, church membership sometimes becomes this off-the-books kind of conversation that we have where everybody's name just gets added to a role or everybody just doesn't do it. But here, here's one of the objections that I, I've heard, especially in our community, is that many of you have been hurt in previous contexts in past churches. Like the leadership maybe has manipulated you or made you do things for their purposes to achieve their ends then the end, know, know that the elders here, myself, Blaze, Mark, we take 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3, incredibly seriously. We take that incredibly seriously. Peter writes to the elders in the church. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not, among, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So the leadership of this church is the first to die. We're the first to run into the field and take a bullet. We're the first to, to lay down our lives in this congregation in order that we might love and use our gifts to serve one another and build up the church. Sometimes people say, well, I think becoming a member is going to require a bunch of it. There are so many of you who are already serving this church with so many different ways. Um, and, uh, and to step into to formal membership is a simple, simple thing. The commands of Christ, we take them very seriously. But we're not, we're not requiring anything of you that's not mentioned in Scripture. 
We're not setting up standards that are outside of the Bible. We want you to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We want you to follow Jesus Christ. And we think that the church is a gift that is given to you in order that you might wash the feet of one another and have your feet washed with regularity, not in a demanding, domineering, over, over, uh, overcomplicated way, but in a simple way that we come together knowing exactly where we stand together as a body. So if you, if you are here this morning and you've been silently objecting to church membership or haven't had an honest conversation about it ever, I would exhort you, now's the time. Let's do it. Come talk to me. Come find me after the service. I'll hand you a membership packet. If you've already gone through the class, that's great. Set up a time. Let's, let's get together and process through it together. It's time. It, I, would, I would say now it's time. Let's talk about what membership is and why, why it matters. So members, stick around for the potluck and meeting afterwards. And if you are interested in church membership based on the things that I've just said, please come talk to me and we'll, we'll move in that direction. Because those who have been washed by Jesus wash the feet of one another. And it's an incredibly important gift given to us, the local church and its members. Okay, so those are just some reminders out of the gate. Not part of the sermon. All right. But here, it's been a while since we've talked about it. So I wanted to lay that in front of you this morning. John chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 36 through John 14 verse 11. And actually when I'm reading, I'm going to back up to verse 33. Um, Our time together in God's word is greatly helped by you having these words in front of you, reading them, keeping your Bible open on your lap while we proceed through the text. I'm going to be continually referencing the text as we go through it together so that we might might see that these are the words of God um, given to us by the Apostle John, preserved for nearly 2,000 years. John chapter 30 or John chapter 13 I'm going to start in verse 33 and read through 14:11 Little children yet a little while while I am with you you will seek me and just as I said to the Jews so now I also say to you where I am going you cannot come a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do, not, or you do know him and have seen him. 
Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. In the Lord of the Rings, in uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo and the other three hobbits make their way to Rivendell, the elf city, uh, with the one ring. They think that's kind of their final destination, but when they sit down at the Council of Elrond, uh, they decide what to do with the ring. That's the purpose of the council. And it's the decided that the ring must be taken to Mordor, to Mount Doom, the only place that it can be destroyed. And many different opinions are expressed during the Council of Elrond. And everybody begins shouting at one another in the, at least the film version. But a small voice breaks through, and it's the voice of Frodo. And he says, I will take the ring to Mordor, though I don't know the way. Though I do not know the way. Early Christians didn't call themselves Christians. We refer to ourselves as Christians, as followers of Jesus, but early Christians did not refer to themselves as Christians. Christian is a term that pops up in the New Testament, but right out of the gate, right after Jesus ascends into heaven and sends his Holy Spirit, the early church referred to themselves as the way. Jesus, or Christian was actually referred to as a derogatory term meaning literal Christ, as applied to those who were, uh, who were following Jesus, who were imitating Jesus in the ancient world. So the book of Acts actually has six references to Christians referring to themselves as the way prior to referring to themselves as Christians. And uh, in, in Acts 11.26, we're told, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And Peter referred to Christians in 1 Peter 4, 6. If you, if, uh, if you want to read that later, you can. But he says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, the context of that is so much of 1 Peter's letter is about suffering. And he understands, Peter understood as someone who was part of the church, who was in the room at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, who was standing next to Jesus and even get some airtime in our passage this morning. Peter understands that Christian is a derogatory term. And if you look at that verse, and if you read that verse, if any, it's over here, sorry, everyone turned around and looked. What are you pointing at? Um, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Peter knows that's a derogatory term. If anyone calls you uh, this name, let him not be ashamed. Bad, bad name, but don't be ashamed by it. Rather, let him glorify God in that name. Let him glorify God in when people revile you, when they speak evil against you. Needless to say, those early Christians who referred to themselves as the way uh, were impacted profoundly by the words of Jesus here. What Jesus says in verse 6 of chapter 14 rang in their ears. And this is a really common, commonly quoted 
Bible verse. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's behind me on the photo. Or it's not a photo, the painting. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so because the words of Jesus impacted them so deeply, they adopted the language of the way to refer to themselves. So I titled this sermon, How Can We Know the Way? And it's sort of intended to have a dual meaning because of the question that Thomas asks. The question is, how can we know the way to the Father? But also, how can we know Jesus Christ? Thomas poses this question in verse 5. He starts out by saying, Lord, we do not know where you are going. Then he asks, how can we know the way? Jesus' answer is that he is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the life. And Jesus is saying that Thomas knows the way because he knows Jesus. He stands right before you. The way isn't a direction. It's not coordinates. It's not a map. It's a person. Frodo Baggins didn't know if he should turn left or right when he left Rivendell. But the follower of Jesus knows exactly the way to the Father and exactly the way to navigate this life. Kalen read from Psalm 119 a little later in that in that psalm. The psalmist writes, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Jesus is God's word in the flesh. He is the light of the world. He gives the light needed to walk through this life and provides the way through and to the Father. So three things in this text this morning that are going to guide our time together. Three things to guide our time. First, Peter's predicted denial. Second, the way to the Father. And then third and finally, a mysterious union. So first thing I want you to see in verses 36 through 38 is Peter's predicted denial. You'll remember last week, and I read it just a moment ago, but we ended our time by looking at verses 34 and 35 in John chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Despite those two verses being the climax of the whole foot washing situation that Jesus initiates at the beginning of John chapter 13, washing the feet of his disciples, engaging and grappling with Peter when Peter says, you'll never do this for me. And Jesus says, if I don't, then you have no share in me. And then Peter says, well, then wash me entirely. And Jesus is like, well, you don't really need that. And then coming to the end of that and having this example set before us as those who have been washed by Jesus, wash the feet of one another. So the culmination of all of what Jesus is doing and saying there finds its home in verses 34 and 35, this new commandment to love one another and to put on display the love of Jesus uh, and the love uh, that, that we are, in fact, Jesus' disciples by the love that we have for one another. That's where Jesus drives that whole, whole situation. But you'll notice that the disciples don't fixate on Jesus's primary point in that. They go back to when Jesus says in verse 33, where I am going, you cannot come. It's almost like they didn't hear what Jesus 
said finally in uh in verses 34 and 35 and just jump right back to verse 33 and so simon peter said to him lord where are you going where are you going now this isn't the first time jesus says that he's going somewhere in john's gospel but they're going to pin him down now and figure it out where is he going where is he going so jesus responds and he says where i am going you cannot follow me now but you will follow afterwards. In verse 33, he said, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you where I am going, you cannot come. Now he says to them, you'll come later. You're going to come where I am going later. Jesus is saying this to tell them that where he is, where he is, when he is gone, they will demonstrate their love for one another by self-sacrificially loving and serving one another. He's not going to be there anymore. But again, Peter gets hung up on this going away part. Peter is beginning to pick up on the reality, and Peter is a slow learner, and so are we. So we identify with him. But so, so Peter is beginning to pick up on this, uh, the reality that I've got to lay my life down for Jesus. Like, I've got to go where he goes. I've got to be where he is. And so if he's going away, how can I, how can I continue to follow him? What does that look like? He's picking up on this reality that he must follow Jesus, whatever the cost. So he asserts here that he's going to follow Jesus even into death. But Jesus knows better. He says, I will lay down my life for you, Peter says to Jesus. But Jesus knows better. And so Jesus says, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And of course, this happens. We'll get there. But Peter's relationship to Jesus is, in fact, in that moment disrupted through his denial of Jesus when Jesus is being tried. But Jesus dies for the sins of Peter and for all of those sins of those who would believe. And so at the end of John's gospel, Jesus restores Peter. He restores him and he brings him back into the fold. So the question is, what's the problem here? Because when you're looking at this and when you say, and when Peter says, I will lay down my life for you, that, that's admirable. That's good. We should all desire to lay down our lives for Jesus in our pursuit of who he is and following him. We should not deny him. Rather, we should die for him. So what's the problem? We should be willing to do this, right? What gives? So brothers and sisters, we must follow Jesus no matter the cost. But I want to point out the futility of trying to do this in our own strength. That's what this is about. It's futile to attempt to do this in our own strength. Later in chapter 14, Jesus is going to introduce us to the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead of the Trinity. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. Proceeding from God the Father, proceeding from the Son, he's going to send the Holy Spirit and it's going to be received at Pentecost. When Jesus goes, the Holy Spirit is given. And for every person who puts their trust in Jesus Christ and repents of their sin, they are given the Holy Spirit as a helper. He is the Spirit of truth. And he dwells in disciples. He dwells in all of those who are in Christ. Jesus knows that Peter is speaking in this instance in John chapter 13. Jesus knows Peter is speaking in his own strength and not in the strength that Jesus supplies. We, as people, have often made 
um, made vows or resolutions, just like Peter does here in our own strength. Many of you have made great resolutions to follow Jesus in everyday life. And you think to yourself, when I get through this painful season, this difficulty, I will follow Jesus no matter what. But you keep slipping back into old patterns of life, into sin, into the sin that keeps entangling you, tripping you up. The same old desires keep tugging at you, and you keep giving in. The Puritan Thomas Watson writes in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, he says, Trust not to a passionate resolution. It is raised in a storm and will die in a calm. Peter was enduring a storm here. He was enduring the reality that Jesus said, I'm going to go. It's like, what am I going to do? Where are you going? So he makes this passionate resolution. I'm coming too. I'll die with you. But when the moment came, he denied Jesus. I will lay down my life for you, Peter says. But when he saw that being associated with Jesus really might cost him in his own life, in his own strength, when he was faced with the accusations of others, Peter's passionate resolution was not enough. In order to face all of the things that come our way in this life, and not to waver on the path as we follow Jesus, our strength is simply not enough. We must fully rely on Christ and the Holy Spirit that he has given to each and every one of us who is in Christ. So that's the first thing we see this morning. Peter's predicted denial and the need for us to rely fully on Jesus Christ in our following him. The second thing I want you to see is the way to the Father. This is an unfortunate chapter break, I think, from 13 to 14, which is why I've lumped these verses together this morning. I think it's an unfortunate unfortunate chapter break because when you, um, if you're reading in a Bible reading plan and Maybe it ends the day at verse or at chapter 13, and then the next day, or maybe after the weekend, you pick up in 14. You might miss some of the, 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 uh, the context here. Jesus just told Peter that Peter was going to deny him at the end of chapter 13. And then look at, his, look at what he says in, the, in verse 1 of 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. If I put myself in Peter's shoes here, I'm, I'm all kinds of troubled. I am not, I am not, I am not, not troubled. I am absolutely troubled. Jesus just said that I was going to deny him. And now he's looking at me saying, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus is telling his disciples all the time about how much it costs to follow him. And I've just been told that I'm going to fail to count that cost and I'm going to deny Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. 
Jesus knows that Peter is going to be restored. He knows everything. He knows what's coming. He knows the end of the story. He knows that his sacrifice is going to perfectly pay for Peter's sin and unbelief and that Jesus is going to bring Peter back into the fold. And even more than that, he is going to lead the church. And when Jesus ascends into heaven, when Jesus departs, and Peter is going to preach all of these amazing sermons and all of these people are just going to get saved. And all he says to them is, you guys killed Jesus. And they're like, oh, we got saved. All of those things are going to happen through Peter. And so Jesus commands his disciples. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. He says, when I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now he's giving some more details. He's saying, I'm going to go. You're going to come later. I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many rooms. And now this idea begins to take shape in their minds. There's something for us. There's something out there. There's something, there's a reality that we're going to live into soon. We don't know, not right now, but soon. They will be together with Jesus again. So here's the question again. How do we get there? You're going. We're going to come later. How do we get there? Lord, we don't know where you are going, Thomas asks. How can we know the way? And then verse 6. I am the way and the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John writes about Jesus as the truth back in chapter 8. He writes about Jesus as the life. Every time, even the prologue, and as recently as chapter 11, when Jesus says he's the resurrection and the life, we explored these ideas, but now he calls himself the way. In this context, this is meant to be the comfort. Let not your hearts be troubled because you know the way to the Father. How can we know the way? If we know Jesus, we know the way. Where do we need to go? We need to get to the Father. We need to be restored to right relationship with God. We need to not be enemies, but to be sons and daughters. How do we get there? Jesus is the way because there is no other path to be made right with God. Remember, remember that, again, this was a while ago, but at the beginning of chapter 13, when we talked about being washed by Jesus, what does it mean to be washed by Jesus? It means that we are, our sins are forgiven. It means that we are made right with God. It means that we're holy. We're, made, we're set apart. And remember that the benefits of what the washing achieves are Union with Christ, we're joined with him. So when God sees you, he sees his son Jesus. Perfect righteousness imparted to you. We're given eternal security. There's nothing that can snatch you out of the Father's hand. There's nothing that can snatch you out of Jesus' hand for all of eternity. We can't even begin to think about that kind of security. This isn't a camera on your front door. All of eternity. And we also receive adoption as sons of God. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 12 of that confession. This was written in 1689. 
is a helpful tool for us to understand biblically how God has set us in this position. God has granted that all those who are justified would receive the grace of adoption in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ. By this, they are counted among the children of God and enjoy the freedom and privileges of that relationship. They inherit his name, receive the spirit of adoption, and have access to the throne of grace with boldness and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are given compassion, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father. Yet they are never cast off, but are sealed for the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. So Jesus makes us, brings us into God's family. And then we ask the question, if I'm a son or if I'm a daughter of God, how do I get to him? We simply cannot get to him on our own. The disciples, without, with, the, with, with the exception of Judas, who had now departed, have been declared to have been washed by Jesus. And so verse 6 is this comfort. They don't think they know where Jesus is going. They don't think they know how to get there. But Jesus says to them, they already know. And he connects the dots for them. Brothers and sisters, you cannot get to God on your own. You cannot induce God to forgive you by strong-arming him with good works. You cannot do enough things to balance the good and make the ledger right and make yourself right with God. You cannot set yourself apart through your own actions. And therefore, there's only one way to the Father, and Jesus is that only way. Joined to him by faith, secured with him for all of eternity, adopted into God's family, with Jesus as your firstborn brother. Do you know Jesus is the only way? Do you know Jesus is the only way? You're like, yes, I know. But Peter's rash vow in verse 37, I will lay down my life for you. This was not the way. Have you made vows like this? Have you made these great resolutions thinking that they will bring you back to God the Father? I won't snap at my spouse. I won't gossip about or slander. I won't grumble or complain. I won't pity myself and my circumstances. I won't look lustfully at a woman or view pornography. I won't covet my neighbor's car or boat or lawn. Maybe you've made good on those resolutions for a little while or for even a long time, only to slip up. Then what? In a pas- you make a passionate resolution to not sin against God and, and go against the commands that he's given to us in his word. And then you slip up and what's your tendency? It's to push, brush it under the rug. I've been doing really well for a really long time. Surely God is just going to pass over this one. We self-justify saying it's been days or months or years since I've sinned in this way. Surely God sees that I'm doing my best, that I'm trying my hardest. Friends, God never dismisses sin. This is a misunderstanding of sin if we think God will pass over it because we've been doing a pretty good job for a while. God never dismisses sin. Sin always deserves and always receives punishment. No one gets a free pass for good intentions and trying hard. 
the good news is for those who have turned from their sin and trusted Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, the punishment goes to Jesus and not to them. Have you turned from your sin and trusted Jesus? If you're always trying to justify your sinful actions, if you're thinking sinning and then thinking good intentions are what will make you right with God, if you're always blaming others or playing the victim and not taking responsibility for your sin, if you're always trying to make yourself look good and hiding your sin from brothers and sisters in Christ, trying to make it look like you're mature because you have it all together, if any of that's true, you don't know Jesus is the way. You think there's another way. You think you can do it yourself. You think that you can justify yourself. You think that good intentions please God. You think that you're never responsible. You think that you can bury your sin under a facade and throw, uh, throw up that facade every time you come to congregational worship or around fellow believers. But for those who know Jesus as the way, they have turned from their sin and they have trusted Jesus Christ. They know they can't do enough to counterbalance the sin that they've engaged in, even the smallest sins. They know that their good intentions are not what pleases God. They know that they're totally responsible to God for their sin. They know what's hiding behind a veil is not helping anyone. It's not helping them and it's not helping, it's not helping others. They know Jesus as the way. For those who have turned from their sin and trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, their punishment for their sin goes to Jesus and not to them. But for those who self-justify, who rely on good works and good intentions, who take no responsibility for their sin, who cover up and airbrush their sin to make themselves look better, those men and women will spend their eternity separated from God in hell. Sin is never dismissed by God. It will always receive punishment. And in God's grace, he sent Jesus Christ into the world to die for you and to die for me. For all who believe, our sin goes to him and not to us. Jesus is the only way to the Father. We must come to him and come through him to the Father. The last thing I want you to see quickly this morning is a mysterious union. The mysterious union we see in verses 8 through 11 in chapter 14. It points us to Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is God. And so Philip wants to see the Father. It's interesting that we have Peter and then Thomas and then Philip. These three guys ask a lot of questions, Peter being the foremost. And you know Thomas is the one who doubts. And Philip is the one who, at the beginning of the gospel, uh, is called to follow him. And Jesus sees him under the tree. Jesus responds that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And then I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now this is mysterious to us. And it is designed to be so. We're not given an indication of how this all works. Scripture doesn't unpack that for us. Like, let me tell you how this all works. But by faith, we trust that God the Father and God the Son are one. They're separate persons of the Godhead, but united as 
1. The design here in verses 8 through 11 are to give us great assurance. They're to give us great assurance that Jesus will not lead us astray. He will not take us down a path that doesn't lead to the Father. He is no other way except to the Father because he and the Father are one. You can fully trust Jesus' words that he is the way, the truth, and the life and that there is no other way to get to the Father because he and the Father are one. Our hearts need then not be troubled like Jesus says in verse 1 because we know that Jesus is one with the Father and we can rest in the reality of what Paul says at the end of Romans 8 that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If anything else comes after that in, there is something. But because the in is Christ Jesus our Lord, because we are in him, because our life is hid with Christ in God, because we are joined with him by faith, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. When we come to Jesus, because of his oneness with the Father, we can be fully assured that we know the way to the Father. And, friends, we can abandon all other ways. All of those other ways that you are tempted to run down this morning, to make yourself look good, to airbrush that sin, to say, I've been doing a pretty good job for a really long time, and I messed up in this one instance. Ah, it'll be fine. All the other ways. We can abandon all of the other ways because Jesus and the Father are one. Two simple applications for us as we wrap up our time this morning. Two simple applications given to us. First, we see this in Peter's denial, or the prediction of it rather, that we are not enough. The world likes to talk about us being enough, but Peter's denial of Jesus is a full-on indicator that we are not enough. Peter's resolution wasn't enough to stick by Jesus during the darkest hour. This passionate resolution, I will die with you, was not enough. Your self-strength won't be enough to battle through when things get hard. Your self-strength will not be enough when suffering, trials, tribulation, hardship come your way. It won't be. You'll find yourself rather at a crossroads. Try and power through in your own strength or humbly come to Christ to light your path and empower you through the Holy Spirit. Trying to power through in your own strength will result in Failure. And failure in itself. You can't do it. You're not enough. But Christ is enough. And Christ will preserve you through even the fieriest trial. Peter had to have all of this in mind when he wrote in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. There is no greater example of 
the trial that someone experiences than Peter experienced here. What do you think he was thinking as he sat along the shore after a night of fishing and saw Jesus walking towards him? He knew better than most of us will ever know in this room that when the fiery trial comes upon us to test us, that we should not be surprised by it. I think that one of the primary reasons we try to just power through suffering is because we don't expect it. Because we are surprised. Because we've bought into this lie that we are enough. That we think that something inside of us, if we just conjure it up, is going to make it, make us through. And you may have gone through your life and be like, I'm fine, I'm doing okay. Everything's fine. Even though Peter resolved to die with Jesus, when the fire got hot, he denied Jesus just like he said he would. And when suffering and trial and tribulation and hardship come upon us in this life, the marker may not be, can I put a smile on my face when I walk through the door on Sunday morning? The marker may be, what other ways am I testing out? What other ways am I trying to, in passionate resolution, follow Jesus in my own strength? Just like Peter learned, though, even when we expect suffering in the Christian life, we are prepared by the Holy Spirit to rely on Christ's strength, not in our resolution to get through it. Are you relying on your own self-strength as you suffer this morning? Repent on your self-reliance. Repent of your self-reliance and believe that Jesus is all that you need. He is enough. Second thing I want you to see this morning, what other ways are you testing? I said it just a minute ago. You may be saying this morning, of course Jesus is the only way to the Father. Of course. I get it. But ask the Holy Spirit, if you've made a habit of walking down these other paths, of wandering these other paths in an attempt to to handle your sin, looking for other ways to deal with it, self-justification, simply downplaying the sin, relying on your good intentions, bearing your sin, hoping no one can see it. Friends, abandon these paths. Come to Jesus. Abandon them now. You may not look as good as you want to look. You may not feel as good as you want to feel. There will be pain in that. But abandon them and come to Jesus. This is the way in which our hearts will not be troubled. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, says the psalmist. Jesus is God's word in the flesh. He is the light to the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He gives us the light needed to walk through this life and provides the way through and to the Father. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word. God, we thank you that it is a firm foundation on which we can build our lives. God, if there are men and women and boys and girls today who are continually running down paths that are not the person of Jesus Christ in an attempt to deal with their sin, wherever they might find themselves this morning, whatever they might find succumbing to them or tugging at their heart and their flesh, whatever sins may be easily entangling them, God, would they stop trusting in themselves and start trusting in Jesus? 
Would they stop trusting in being rid of these things and start trusting in the way, the truth, and the life? God, we are, we are dust. You are mindful of us. God, may our hearts be encouraged. May they not be troubled this morning. May there be no barrier that stands between us and running down the right path, the one illuminated by your word. May we see Jesus as the true way and may those barriers of what will people think and how can I turn and what would that look like? What would it do to me? What would it do to my reputation? What would it do to others around me if I'm truthful with them about sins that have entangled me and ways that I've pursued to handle that sin that are other than Jesus? God, would you stir in men and women even now a helpful and healthy desire for accountability with one another? Because those who have been washed by Jesus wash the feet of one another. And we know that we need help walking through this life. We know that the sins that get stuck on our feet need need treatment by brothers, sisters in Christ. God, thank you for the great privilege. Thank you for the gift of the local church to help us walk through this life unencumbered. God, would you now, in your divine providence, in your wisdom, grant us those relationships Grant us a clear view of Jesus. God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.